Um, so maybe just to kind of uh, dovetail off of uh, that moment, just uh, just so you guys know, David kind of explained. Um, we do uh, as an as an on ramp to membership at Sulphur Community Church. Uh, we do a membership class. Um, and it's a four session, four one hour sessions, and we do it kind of different creative ways uh, throughout the year. We we right now we do three we do three sessions, uh, two four hour blocks in in the spring and in the in the fall, and then we do a, a one day intensive on a Saturday, and that's what we just went through. And so a lot of people were able to to kind of get their membership stuff done at that point. Um, and it's important for us uh, that uh, we don't just say, hey, you want to be part of our family and just come on in the door. Um, it, it's, it's important to us, first of all, that you understand our heart um, for, uh, for serving this, this, uh, this community and the nations. It's uh, what our heart is um, for uh, making disciples, um, what we believe, how we intend to do ministry. All those things are important to us, and we would hope that anyone who would want to kind of, um, you know, align themselves with our church family, would, would those things would be important to you too. So it's, it's an opportunity for you to hear from us uh, on, on what we believe and how that translates into what we do. Um, and then, you know, again, it's as it's creepy as it may sound, it's as serious as a, as a commitment of, of marriage to one another. It's just, it's just as serious as that, that um, we're going to kind of go through highs and lows together, uh, but we're going to do it together. Um, and, we, you know, there's accountability and responsibility and privilege and care and serving and all those things that happen. So we want to we put an emphasis on that. Um, so we just wrapped up a summer session um, just last Saturday or Saturday before or something. Last Saturday, it's been a blur, um, and uh, and then we will likely uh, early fall um, we will we'll have another uh, session of new members where we will meet over uh, uh, Sunday mornings before church one hour blocks for four weeks. That's kind of what we do. Uh, we just try to mix and match it up a little bit because some of you guys are willing to devote four hour blocks on a Saturday morning. Some of you are not ready to kind of uh, you know get up in the morning on Saturday and do that, and so it works better for you on Sundays. And so we're just trying to be fluid that way. Uh, um, to make sure that everybody has an opportunity uh, for for that for that that class. Um, okay, so today. We are actually kicking off a new series. Uh, it's going to be a five-week series through the book of Jonah. And um, if you are still using a paperback Bible, um, you're going to need the table of contents to get to Jonah. Uh, it's, a, it's one of the minor prophets. It's towards the, the back of the Old Testament, and it's kind of sandwiched in a bunch of other smaller books. And so uh, don't be ashamed to go to your, your, your table of contents and find Jonah if you have to do that. Most of you are using a, some kind of device where um, you know it took, it took all the thinking out of it for us. And so we can just scroll to it and get it. So you want to get there. Um, and that's where we're going to be over the next five weeks. And as we kick off this, uh, this series through the book of Jonah, I want to help frame this book up. And that's kind of what I'm going to spend probably the better part of our morning doing. We are going to walk through chapter one um, and we're going to pick up the key ideas that are going on in chapter one. But I mainly just kind of want to set the book up for you for the next several weeks that Joey and David and then myself at the end, we're going to kind of walk through this. Um, and I want to start out by getting some participation from all of you. Um, so I want you um, verbally, audibly to say it out loud, fill in the blank for me, Jonah and the big fish. Somebody said whale? Either, either one works. They're the same thing. Not Jonah and the Ninevites. Not Jonah and the pagan sailors. Not Jonah and God's mercy, not Jonah and his hard heart, Jonah and 
the big fish, the great fish, the whale. And so that's the challenge that we have of preaching through this book. That you all like good Bible Belt Christians answered it that way. And we got a challenge with that. We got to walk through that. And we got to try to deconstruct some things and then rebuild some good foundation about this book. This is what I mean. Uh, we've taken this, this complex, this complicated, beautiful, deep book that points to the grace of God. Um, and, and we've reduced it to a moralistic children's story. That's what we've done with this story. Uh, and it goes something like this. Jonah sins... And God puts him in a, like a divine timeout of sorts by putting him in the belly of a great fish. Jonah comes to his senses and obeys God. The end isn't that great. Be like Jonah. That's the story that we've kind of constructed for this book. And this is how we've wrapped it up and, and sold it. And what's actually, what this actually reveals um, is that we, we really haven't read through this book prayerfully and thoughtfully. That's what it reveals. So if we kind of look at the whole story of Jonah as this moralistic story that we can share with children and put pictures on the wall in their room to kind of theme it that way, and, and we don't really get to the heart of it, what we kind of expose in ourselves is that we don't really know the story, that we haven't really thought about the story. And so I'm excited that we get to do this, that we get to kind of walk through it slow, and that by the end of this, we'll all have a great understanding of the book of Jonah. And hopefully, we will see it way more beautifully and way more deeper than just a moralistic children's story. That's what I'm hoping for at the end of this. Um, and in fact, the story really doesn't even end with Jonah's repentance at all. Uh, it's going to be kind of a disappointing ending to the story on some, on some level for us because it doesn't... You, you want it to go one way and it's not going to go. And you're going to get frustrated through the whole story that way. You're going to think when we're turning around a corner that God is fixing to do something like the storyline is going to change and it, and it goes in the opposite direction. And you're going to see that at the end as well. And we'll be left uh, with, with the end of this book as this prophet of God who's offended and bitter towards God and bitter towards God's mercy. He's mad at God at the end of this story. And so it's not going to have like this cute hallmark ending to it. And we're going to be left with a guy who is begging God to just end his life, just to take him out because he can't stand the thought of living in a world where God would choose to forgive his enemies. He can't fathom it, and he doesn't want to exist in that kind of world. And he's not going to be the hero of our story. He won't be the hero. We're going we're gonna to learn about pagan sailors. And if you were a young Hebrew kid and you were uh, being told the story of Jonah, when, when this part came about these sailors, these were, these were people that you didn't look up to. These were kind of pagan people and they weren't cultured people and they, they were just kind of bad people. And so when you heard this story, that's kind of how you, uh, that's how you associated the pagan sailors. We're going to learn about a, a pagan king who ruled this at this time in this most wicked uh, kingdom that he, that he ruled in. We're going to learn about this metropolis city, this great city called Nineveh that is just full of pagan people and pagan worship. No one uh, after God's heart. No one uh, worshiping the one true God. And you know who the worst person is going to be in this story? It's going to be the prophet of God, Jonah. He's going to be the worst person. Of all those people that we're going to learn about in this story, he's going to be the worst one of the story. You know who the one person in our story who doesn't repent? Jonah. The prophet of God, Jonah. 
And so as we kick this series off, I want to start with a little bit of context. And I want to, I want to help you read this book uh, well and thoughtfully and prayerfully over the next few weeks. And so it's a short book. It's four chapters, four short chapters. And so it would be really, really cool if maybe once a week we would stop and just read through the book, man. Just read through the entire storyline. Uh, it, it really is only going to take you about 10 or 15 minutes to read through the whole thing. And just by the, I mean, the, the, we'll just kind of grow deeper and deeper in our knowledge of who God is and how he shows himself in this story. Um, and my prayer is that you would, you would not just come here on Sunday mornings and be a consumer to be, to be spoon fed. That's my prayer is, is that, um, that you would take ownership, that you would take responsibility in your pursuit of God and wrestling with these scriptures. That's my prayer. So, um, so let's, let's all work together. Let's all dig in together into this book. Um, as we walk through it over the next five weeks. Here's a few things that I believe is going to help you as you read through this book. Over the next few weeks, one question that we always have to ask whenever we approach any book of the Bible, if we're going to read through a book of the Bible, um, we have to ask, like, what kind of genre is this book? Like, what kind of literature is going on here? Because you, you have to ask that question. All 66 books of the Bible are, are divinely inspired and written by the Holy Spirit through the hands of uh, human authors. And in these 66 books, we have all kinds of literature, different types of literature. There's historical literature. When you read about Genesis and Numbers and we went through the book of Ruth, that's historical literature. It's, it's, it's a moment in time that we can associate on a timeline and it's real events that are taking place. There's the, there's the law that we see in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy where we're, it's a different type of literature. There's wisdom literature like Job and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Um, and there's even apocalyptic um, literature. We even sang a song from apocalyptic literature this morning. Who is worthy to open up the scrolls? And you, you, that, that's coming straight out of the book of Revelation. And another book like Daniel are these apocalyptic literatures. And if you don't consider what kind of literature the book is that you're reading, you're going you're gonna to be prone to misinterpret God's word. You're going to get frustrated because it doesn't seem like it, seems like it contradicts itself. Uh, and you'll end up missing the point that he's trying to make in each book. And so it's important for us to ask that. So when you ask the question of Jonah, the book of Jonah, like what kind of literature is, is Jonah? It's a difficult question to answer, actually. And, and people way smarter than you and me have disagreed throughout the ages on really what kind of literature Jonah would be. It lacks some of that straightforward um, historical marks uh, uh, like a first and second kings where you can read it and you can see kings and, and moments and events and kingdoms and all these things and you kind of put it on a timeline. It, it, it doesn't have those marks for us to know. We don't really have dates or historical events to kind of put Jonah in, its, in a historical narrative. But it does contain history. It, it, it is an event that happened in history, but it contains a really a lot more than that. Jonah falls into this category of what, what we call the minor prophets, and he's one of 12 minor prophets in the, in the Old Testament. But the other minor prophets that you would read in the book, they're all kind of pointing the people of God back to the promises and back to the oracles of God. Every other book in the, in the, the minor prophets of the Old Testament. And so, so here in Jonah, you don't really see that. As a matter of fact, you don't see Jonah speak much at all in here. He will preach probably one of the worst sermons ever preached in, in all of mankind. It was a five-word sermon, and he never even mentioned God. And so that's about the gist of his, of his you know, his words and how, and, and how he speaks in, in this book. And so we're going to be left wrestling with, 
what is the heart of this book when we just try to put it in one category. When we try to look at all the literature across Scripture, you just try to put it in one category. We're gonna, there's, it's going to be hard to fit the entire narrative into one. And while this book contains history, right, uh, let me just say that it also contains, if I could say, divinely inspired satire. And what, what I mean by this, using this phrase, uh, I'm not insinuating that the story isn't real or the events in the story isn't real. There are actual events that have happened in, in this story. But when I say satire, I want you to think Saturday Night Live. I want, to, I want you to think The Onion. I want you to think Babylon B, where uh, what typically happens with satire is that there's humor and there's irony and there's exaggeration uh, and, the, and these are used to point out flaws in people and point out flaws in, in culture. Um, and this kind of satire is funny. It's, it's kind of funny because it's kind of true, right? It's, you know, okay, so a lot of you are familiar with the Babylon Bee and we all get a kick out of it. You want to know why? Because there's a lot of truth in it. It's funny because it's true. Some of the most funniest comedians that you're going to listen to are funny because it's, they're just speaking the truth about mankind and culture and, and different things. But the best kind of satire that you, can, um, that you can expose yourself to is the kind of satire that's not just poking fun at other people, but it puts you and me on the hook. That's the best kind of satire. So like good satire is going to put us on the hook. It's going to reveal the gap between who I imagine myself to be and who I really am. That's good satire. And that's, that's probably needed a lot of times. And it's, about, it's basically about inviting us to hold up this mirror, right? And to, to look at ourselves in the face and realize just how deep our hypocrisy runs sometimes. Just how, how deep what we, the, how, how wide the gap is between what we say we believe and what our lives actually look like. On a lighthearted note, it can be funny, but in some places it's deadly. Some places in our lives, it's deadly. And this is the book of Jonah. I want for the book of Jonah over the next five weeks to wake this church up from her slumber. I want us to quit walking around saying we believe stuff. I want us to start doing what we believe. The book, this, this purpose, the purpose of this book is to get God, is to get like the, the people of God, the people in this room, the people of this church to reflect deeply on what it means to be recipients of mercy. What does that mean for me and how does that translate in my life? That God has shown me mercy. That he's shown me grace. It's the, the book, this book is meant to point out that gap that we have between our, our hearts and God's mercy toward his enemies. That's what we're going to see this morning in this book. That's what we're going to see throughout this book. And what I hope we'll learn in this series is that we have way too much in common with Jonah. That's what I hope we'll see and what we'll learn. And so we're going to pick up in verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1. And it starts like this. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up, come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So there's multiple occasions throughout Scripture. Um, where God speaks to one of his prophets um, and they don't like what he tells them to do. 
In fact, it's very normal in Scripture when you read the word of the Lord comes to a certain prophet that he will hesitate in doing what God tells him to do. It's kind of this normal rhythm. Some of them will argue about their calling as a prophet when he comes to them and, and commands them to say something or do something. Some of them will, will, they will they'll debate with him. They'll try to make a deal with him. So, some of them will try to talk him out of what he wants to do. But here we have something altogether unique with Jonah. We have a prophet who doesn't respond to God in prayer. He doesn't respond with, with debating, not even a conversation with God. When God comes to him and gives him this word. God tells Jonah to go east and he goes west. The opposite direction. And he does this. The text is very clear about what he's doing here. It says he is fleeing from the presence of God. God puts a call on his life, commands him to do something, and he runs from God. He doesn't want to be with God. If being with God means going to preach to, to the Ninevites, to go, to go to Nineveh and preach, Jonah wants nothing to do with God. And he runs. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. And so you can imagine for a second not knowing the whole story. Just let's pretend for a second that you, you're kind of following along and you're listening to this story for the first time. And this is where we are in the story. Imagine not knowing the rest of the story. Here we have this, these highly capable, highly experienced, highly seasoned sailors. And what we learn from the text is that they see this storm and they realize this is no normal storm. Something's going on here. The text would even say they were just terrified by this storm. These are, these are people who, who are very accustomed to sailing and traveling and navigating through rough seas and waters. This is their living. This is their livelihood. But this storm, something's different, and they're terrified. And that's what we have. And if, if you and I were a Hebrew child and we were being told this story at this point, we'd begin to think, well, you know, maybe, maybe God's maybe kind of consolidating his wrath a little bit. You know, like maybe, maybe that he's going to deal with this ship full of pagan sailors, right? And Jonah, who's just running from him, being disobedient, he's just going to kind of take them all out in one strike with this storm. He's just going to kind of end it, right? If we're Hebrew children listening to the story for the first time, that's probably what's going to be going through our mind. God's fixing to get vengeance on those, those bad people, those people who are against him. But instead, the captain came and said to him, Jonah, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we, might, we may not perish. So everybody's calling out to their gods and homeboy's sleeping and they have to wake him up and say, I don't know who you worship, what God you have, but wake up and start calling him. Maybe that's the one that we need for, to settle this whole thing out. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the, man, for the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. There's so much happening right there. 
There's a lot happening right there. The prophet of God called to pray to speak on behalf of God is asleep in the boat. These pagans who don't even know God, they know that there's some kind of divine force going on in this storm. This is not normal. There's something supernatural happening in this storm right here. And they're doing the best they know how to pray. They're calling out to all sorts of deities and all sorts of idols that they're used to calling out to. And they're just trying to do the best that they can do. The captain would go and wake Jonah up. And they cast lots, which is this weird um, ancient practice to discern what's going on. And that's, we won't get into all that, but that's what's happening there. And this lot falls on Jonah and they demand to know who he is. And did you pick up what he said? I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And I would expect more emotional reaction from you when we say that. Because what you're supposed to go is like, yeah, right. Where are you, Jonah? You don't fear the Lord. You say you do. You say you belong to him. But look where you're at. Look what you're doing. You're a psycho. You don't fear God. You're running from God right now. You don't really, really believe that God is the one who is sovereign over the sea or the dry land. Because guess what? Where did you go to escape God? To the sea. So you really don't believe that. Quit saying that. He's full of talk and he's full of religious games. But his hypocrisy stinks. It stinks, and we should, get, we should get riled up about that, right? When Jonah says that, or when anybody else says that, who aligns themselves with Jesus and says, yeah, I follow Jesus, but there's absolutely no fruit or nothing in your life that would attest to the fact that you actually follow Jesus, that you actually love him. It's hypocrisy, and it stinks, and it should get us riled up. So what we begin to see in this text is that this prophet doesn't really have a genuine fear of God, but these pagans, they start getting a taste of the true fear of God. They start getting it, and they said to him in verse 11, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land because you just don't do that. I mean, even pagans have a conscience, right? And they're like, ah, that's not cool. We're not going to do that. We're going to try to get back to land and drop him off on the, on the shore. But it grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, all caps, Lord, Yahweh God. These pagan men are now calling out to Yahweh God. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us an innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. And so they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. They call out to the Lord for refuge and for safety and for his covering. And as soon as he provides it, they, they respond with worship. We miss that part in the book of Jonah, don't we? That pagan sailors have now come to know the one true God. More so than the prophet of God himself, Jonah, seems to be. And so it's, it's amazing what's going on here. What's happened is we have these 
pagan sailors. They're coming to the knowledge of God. They're repenting and they're turning to him. They're turning from their sin. They're being brought near uh, to God as one of the covenant people of God, finding their refuge in his mercy and in his grace. And then there's Jonah. Doing what seems to be really sacrificial, right? Like he's going to give away his life for these pagan sailors so that they might be saved. That's what we're tempted to say. But here's the problem. There's still some storyline left to go. And what you realize as you read the rest of the story is that he doesn't really give a rip about these pagans. He doesn't care about these people. Now, I think what's happening here is that Jonah has this light bulb go off in his head. And his attitude is now that to be sure that the mercy of God doesn't go to the Ninevites to reach those pagans, I'd just soon be dead. So hurl me over, man. That's the only, the only way this is going to stop is if I'm dead. He would rather die than see God's mercy extended to his enemies. And I hope that breaks your heart. I hope it confronts us. I hope it confronts you and I hope it confronts me in some ways where we some, say there are some people in this world that we feel like are too far for God to reach. That God's mercy should not be extended that far. And this should be confronting to us and it should break our hearts. Again, imagine not knowing the rest of the story. You're getting the story, the narrative for the first time as Jonah begins to sink into the sea and then you hear this verse... And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So if the story would stop there, you'd be like, oh, wow, okay, amazing. So God showed mercy to these pagans, but he crushed Jonah. That's a little ironic, but, but oh, oh, well. And it wasn't enough that Jonah just for him to drown, but God's going to really pour it out. He's going to get like swallowed up by a fish and, and digested through a fish. Like that's a terrible way to go out. But if you know the rest of the story, what you're going to learn is that the whole thing is highlighting the fact that God is holy. God is holy and God is righteous and he is just and he will not be mocked, yet he delights in showing mercy. He, who is a God like you pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever, but he delights in steadfast love. He delights in pursuing those who are far from him. God delights in that. He delights in repentance. And God's calling always has at least... And I know I use a definite word like always, and, and I've tried to be careful to make sure that I've thought through this, but he always has at least two simultaneous goals whenever he places a calling on someone's life. And here we see for the, at, the, this, this, at, the, at the start here, at the first, where God calls Jonah to, to preach to Nineveh because he wants to express his, his mercy to the Ninevites. He wants to save some Ninevites. And so he calls Jonah to go and preach. He could have judged Nineveh. He could have judged them without sending a prophet to preach, and he would still be right in doing so. Because we're all fallen. We're all rebellious toward God, and we all deserve his wrath. Don't we? And so he would be just, and he would be right, and not sending a prophet to preach anything to anyone in Nineveh. But he desires to, and he places the calling on Jonah... Because he delights in pursuing them. 
He delights in pursuing them. And so this is the first part that God is inviting Jonah, a person who's a part of his his covenant people to to, to partner with him in extending mercy even to his enemies. He's invited Jonah to participate in Missio Dei, in the mission of God. He's inviting Jonah to be a part of what he's doing. He's doing it anyway. He's inviting Jonah to come be a part of it. And then there's a second part to this calling. This other thing that God is working out and calling Jonah to participate in the extension of his mercy to the Ninevites. He's he's also extending his mercy to Jonah. He's also doing that for Jonah. What happens in this moment, God calls Jonah to the mission, is that Jonah's heart becomes exposed. We get to see see Jonah's heart. All the idols that Jonah loves over God is being exposed as he calls Jonah to go to the Ninevites. His security, his comfort, his nationality, his prosperity, the prosperity of his people. All these things become exposed in Jonah when God says, go preach the gospel to the Ninevites. Go preach mercy and go preach love to them. I don't know all the deep-seated sins that Jonah has in his heart, but what we learn from this moment as you look through this text is that there are a lot of things that Jonah treasures above God. That's what we do learn. There's things in Jonah's life that he sets priorities over his relationship with God. In his mercy, God is calling Jonah to participate in his mission. And at the same time, he's, he, as he extends this calling, he's exposing that hypocrisy. He's exposing the dead religion and the idolatry in Jonah's heart. And that's merciful. That's merciful when God does that. That's, he's being kind to us when he does that for us. When he shows us our hypocrisy, when he shows us our dead religion, that doesn't mean anything, doesn't translate into anything, shows us our idolatry. We need that. And I hope you begin to feel the weight of this, both as an individual but as a church. I hope we kind of feel the weight of this. That as God calls us to the neighborhoods and to the nations, that simultaneously he's going to have to expose things in each one of our hearts that's going to have to be worked out. That's, that's going to have to require some deep, genuine repentance so that we can be used effectively. The calling of God on your life and on my life and collectively as a, as a church, all these various callings, they're about these two things. Are, are you called to singleness? Some of you don't even consider that, do you? Wait, that called to singleness? The New Testament is clear about this kind of calling. That, and it's considered a, a partnership with God to extend mercy to people as you serve them. And, and it's not about living a life of freedom and reduced responsibility. But the Bible explains it as it's a holy calling. It's a holy calling giving to you where you, where you, get, you get to leverage more of yourself and more of your, more of your resources and, and time to, to, to bless and benefit other people. That's how Paul would lay it out for us. And so for my single friends in the room, just, just consider this calling for just a minute. Just think about it. Am I single? Because it might be a calling in my life. I would imagine that your hypocrisy and your idolatry begins to be exposed when you start to think about that, doesn't it? 
There's a lot of things that you would rather not let go of when you consider that calling. That's a hard calling. The fact that you bought into the lies of our culture that without marriage and without kids that you're not a complete person. That's a lie. That's something our culture has wrapped up real nice and sold you. He's doing two things. He's using you to extend his love. And at the same time, he's forming you by his love. He's forming you by his love as he shows you the things in your life that just don't look like Jesus. You called them marriage. Some of you are married. Some of you have answered that call. Some of you are pursuing that call. I would consider many of you in the room newlyweds, five years or less in, in marriage. I would consider you to be a, a newlywed or even more than that. This calling involves you laying down your life for your spouse. That's not like a figure of speech. That's real stuff. To be an extension of God's love and mercy to your spouse. To see God's grace build up and form your spouse as you love and you care for them. That's a calling that God places on our life. And at the same time, the call to marriage exposes some dark things in your heart, doesn't it? Say amen. It does. It, it exposes some things in us. Marriage does. Some of you have experienced that. We have major entitlement issues. And we don't really learn that about ourselves until we've got to share a home with someone. Share a life with someone. Learn how selfish I am. And I didn't know that about me until I had to be married and these things had to be worked out. And, and by the grace of God, they're still being worked out. And I don't feel like I'm that far down the road when it comes to selfishness being worked out of me. That there are so many habits, so many priorities to, to, to being the center of your own universe. And these things just kind of really get put on display when you get married. It's like, wow, man, I didn't know I, didn't know I was so self-centered. Until I had to share life with someone, you know? There's nothing quite like marriage. And that it shows you just how jacked up you are and how desperately you need Jesus. That's what marriage is good for. There's nothing quite like it. I can mention a dozen more examples. The call to church membership. We talked about that this morning. That's a calling. To, to, to participate in the ministry of a local church and not shop around from week to week, jumping around, looking for the latest, greatest thing to consume. But to be a biblical Christian where we covenant together for the good of our community and for the glory of God. That's a, that's a calling. And God is doing at least, at least two things with this, right? You see him doing two things, like he's calling us to exercise our gifts, to love and serve one another, and he's exposing all these priorities and all these preferences that we hold above our devotion to Jesus. He does those two things as we consider answering the call to even local church ministry, uh, membership. And he has these two parts to God's to his call on Jonah's life. You see it, to go and extend mercy and grace, to participate with him in showing that to, the, to other people, and then to expose just how badly Jonah needs renewal, how much he needs God's repeated mercy in his life. And running from God will always be a descent. It will be, it will be down. Jonah is in pursuit of freedom. That's what he's running for. He's headed, he thinks he's headed for freedom. That's where he's wanting to go from God's obligations, from God's commands. God says, go east. Jonah goes west. 
And I don't know if you've been paying attention, but there's this same repetitive thing that keeps going on in this text. He goes down to Joppa. He goes down into the ship. He goes down into the sea. He goes down into the belly of the fish. Running from God is a descent. It is going down. His pursuit of freedom was away from joy, and it was away from satisfaction. It was away from the happiness that he thought he was trying to get. He was running away from those things. And pursuit of this kind of freedom is running away from who you truly are. That's, you're running away from that. You're running away from like the freedom true freedom, and you're running into bondage, pursuit of this kind of freedom is going to plunge you into the depths of despair. And that's the storyline that we're picking up here. But there's good news. There's, there's great news. Because it doesn't matter how far down you go, God's presence is there. Jonah's trying to run from God's presence and he's trying to get as far away from it as he can. And when he gets to the bottom of the pit, he finds God there. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. There's no running from God. He, his presence is everywhere. Even in Jonah's flight from God's presence, a, a flight from beauty and purpose and joy in the darkest, most chaotic place he could possibly be, even in that place, the arm of the living God is not too short to save. Even in that place. I don't know where you are. I don't know where you're at this morning, how far away from God you have run, but he's there and his presence is there and his arm is not too short to save you. Are you in this place? Are you in this place where you're slowly being decreated from the image of God that you were made in by the, by the idols and the preferences that you have, addiction and self-gratification that are unmaking who you really are, that are decreating you, ruining your career, ruining your family, in a place you hope would bring freedom and, and liberty, but instead it's bringing chaos and it's bringing ruin and it's bringing loss. Is that where you're at this morning? God's there. He's there. And he delights in showing mercy. He delights in showing forgiveness. He delights in restoring you and renewing you. He delights it. There's hope for you in that place because you can encounter the presence of God there. And if nothing else sticks with you today, if nothing else, this is the occupational hazard of preaching where you, you stand up and you talk for a long time and nobody remembers anything. If you don't remember anything, I want you to remember this one thing as we journey off into the book of Jonah. It's all about pointing us to Jesus. The book of Jonah is not about Jonah. It's about Jesus, and it's meant to point us to Jesus. We're going to end our series in week five looking at this passage, but if you want to run there now to Matthew chapter 12, um, Jesus kind of puts it this way. Uh, as we think about the story of Jonah, we need to think about it correctly and respond correctly. But he says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 38, uh, Jesus says this, uh, as, the, as the scribes and Pharisees uh, asked him, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. He answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. 
The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The story is about Jesus. The story is about Jesus and what the point, that's the whole point of the book of Jonah, that there are a ton of complex and a ton of beautiful things that, that, that God wants us to take away from this book. And so I don't want to take anything away from that. But at the heart of the book of Jonah is for you to see that this sinful Hebrew prophet's descent into chaos of the waters is an actual foretelling of the perfect Hebrew prophet. The perfect one sent from God who descends into the chaos of this world, who comes from heaven to earth. The mercy shown to these pagan sailors that we see, it's meant to point us to the mercy that the coming Messiah delights and desires in showing to us and to showing to his enemies. That name Amittai, that name Amittai, we saw that in the beginning of our text, Jonah, the son of Amittai, that, that name means faithfulness. You see, Jonah's called the son of faithfulness, except... He really smeared mud on that name, didn't he? His return from the depths of the sea as a great fish vomits him out, 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 just points us to the true son of faithfulness that God is sending to us. One who will, in fact, remain faithful. One who will, in fact, walk in pure, true devotion to his father. Who won't sway one way or the other will return from the grave for final victory over death and over sin and darkness. This foolishness of Jonah's message. And that's what it was. It was foolishness of his messages. It just reminds us that the gospel is foolish to the wise. It's foolish to this culture. But it is the power of God unto salvation. Even if it doesn't make sense to the rest of the world, we know that that's where salvation is found, is in the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. So there's hope for pagans. God's arm is not too short to save even the farthest person from him. There's hope for God's prophets too. There's hope for people who have a calling specifically on your life from God. There's hope for you too. Even if you're walking in disobedience, there's hope for you. And that's good news. It's good news because Jesus gave his life for the religious people, the hard-hearted people, people who have all the theology and all the scriptures organized in their head right, but it's just dead religion. Jesus gave his life for you. Jesus gave his life for the irreligious person who's running from him, who's far from him right now, who knows that they are distant from God and they need him. He's there for you too. And, and we have hope in him. We, as, a, as a church, as we try to... As we tr try to figure out how to walk in obedience to Jesus as a collection of people who've been called by him, there's hope in knowing that we're not always going to get it right. We're, we're going to get it wrong a lot, but our hope is in Christ. He's forming us and he's making us into the likeness of who he is. And we have to every single step of the way just be ready to say, yes. Yes, I'll take that next step. Whatever it is you're calling me, Jesus, I'm taking the next step. And so my prayer for our, the next four weeks now is that we would consider as individuals and collectively as a church how this might confront us, how this, what things might be exposed in all of us. What are things that we're idolizing right now that keep us from participating in the mission of God? 
What are the things that we are holding at a higher preference right now than God's call on our life? Is it comfort? Is it convenience? Is it time? Is it money? What career? What, what is it? Family? None of those things should take a priority over the one true God who controls all of these things. Who's Lord over all of them. And so as a church, we need to be ready to say yes. Actively looking for ways that God might be working in and around us and joining him in that mission. Let's pray together and we'll, uh, we'll close today. Father, we come to you this morning. Um, Lord, and, uh, we come in, uh, in anticipation and expectancy for what you're going to do over the next uh, several weeks in our series through this book. And Lord, for whatever reason you, um, you have, whether you intend to reveal that to us or not, your hesitation in allowing this door to be open for nearly a year has come. And so we, we, we open our hands and we open our hearts, Father, and we freely receive from you what you have to show us, what you have to teach us, and how you intend to um, activate us and mobilize us. Father, forgive us whenever we take yet another series, another book of the scriptures as a resource for us to consume and to know and to store away in our brains. But Lord, would you use, um, would you use this time in this series and this book uh, to, ca to, to catalyze us, Father, to, to, to wake us up, to rearrange our priorities, to expose some things that we idolize, to expose some things uh, that we hold in a higher preference than you in our hearts. God, would you show each one of us individually and as a church collectively. Lord, I pray over this room right now. Um, Lord, that we see Jesus in this scripture. That we see Jesus in all of our scriptures. And through the word of God that we're able to see who we are and who you are. And God, that gap is wide. And there's only one person able to bridge the gap and it's Jesus. And so Father, I pray that we see him in all of his beauty and all of his sacrifice and all of his ability and in all of his worth to bridge this gap for us so that we might be called sons and daughters of God. God, would you wake up hearts this morning? Would you give life to dead hearts this morning so that faith, obedience, commitment would be given to you, that we would realign ourselves and, and show allegiance to you above all, all other things, all other idols, all other gods, all other forms of worship that we have in our lives. And we love you, Jesus. And we ask these things in your precious name. Amen.